Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32, we read. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was going before them and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Our current passage provides a prediction of the future and an outline of the events that will occur in the remaining chapters of the book of Mark. We've already learned from Mark's gospel that Jesus is no ordinary man. He is God's servant. He is the ultimate human being. He is the perfect servant and the ideal servant. And Jesus is the ideal servant because he knows God's will and he's willing to accomplish God's plans. And that becomes a type and a picture for you. If you've ever asked and answered the question, am I God's servant? In order to be God's servant, you must know his will and embrace his plan. For Jesus, the plan includes rejection and suffering and glory. And by the way, in the remaining chapters, we will see a literal fulfillment of this prophecy. And it will serve as an outline for the rest of the book. In the remaining chapters, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. That's chapter 11, verse 1, all the way to chapter 13, verse 37. It's the journey. The second, the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes. That's chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. And chapter 14, verses 43 and 53. And 3, they will condemn him to death. That's chapter 14, verses 55 through 56. And deliver him to the Gentiles. That's chapter 15, verse 1. They will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. That's chapter 15, verses 2 through 38. And it says, on the third third day he will rise again. That's chapter 16 verses 1 through 11. The Lord will predict his death and his resurrection for the third time. He did so the first time in Mark chapter 8 verse 31 and then again in Mark chapter 9 verse 3 through 32. In the first prediction he announced his rejection in Mark 8:31. In the second prediction, he included the betrayal in Mark 9:31, and now he adds the additional information that he will die and he will come back to life. Jesus told them where the passion would take place, and now he includes Another additional bit of information that the Gentile government, the Roman occupation will play a role in his execution. And now for the fourth time, he promises to rise from the dead. Jesus will tell his disciples the truth. But they'll be unable to understand it. And so in this particular passage, we'll see 
the ideal servant's gracious concern, his great courage, his glorious confidence. Look again in verse 32. It says, now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was going before them and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. They took then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. In verse 32, it begins with the servant's focus and determination. Now they were on the road. The word translated road is the Greek noun hodos. In the King James Version, it says now they were on the way. Long before Christians were called Christians, they were called the people of the way. As a matter of fact, it became a, a metaphor, if you will, for the journey. And by the way, this journey, this discipleship, this thing called following Jesus includes going in the direction that he's going. And so we as Christians are on a road and the road is marked suffering, though there's pain in the offering. The road is marked discipleship. It includes suffering and death, but it also includes glory. And sometimes we become so preoccupied with the suffering and the death that we forget about the glory. This week at a pastor's conference, I was hearing incredible stories of hardship and pain and deprivation and people going through all kinds of difficulties. And some of you are going through those same difficulties. Marriages are failing. People are losing their jobs. There's all kinds of difficulties. One pastor relates related how in just a series of weeks, uh, his house burnt down and then his wife was in a terrible car accident. And if that wasn't all, then his father died. It seems like when it rains, it pours. And we often wonder. Why is my path so strewn with difficulty and pain and suffering? But right away we learn something. That the ideal servant goes before us. Look what it says. And Jesus was going before them. The King James translates this leading the way. And I think that's right. The Greek participle is pro, agonago. It's a long O. It means pro is the word in the Greek language that would mean before. And agonago is a, is a word that means in a direction or a way. And thus it means to lead the way. This becomes important for our later discussion. And one of the things that will cause astonishment and fear among the disciples. Jesus is leading the way in utter boldness and utter courage and utter determination. Jesus is heading for Jerusalem and what lies in Jerusalem. It's a cross. Sweet puts it this way, quote, the Lord walked in advance of the twelve with a solemnity and a determination which forebode danger. He walks in that direction and he walks with a focus and determination. Some of you are exactly like that. You get so focused on the direction that you're going, you lose sense of everything and everyone around you. <laughs> 
I shouldn't go with my wife to Kohl's. Because she knows exactly where she's going and she knows exactly what she wants to do. When I'm at the airport, I know exactly what I'm doing and I know exactly how to get out of that airport. And sometimes if I'm not paying attention, I'll lose sight of everyone who's with me. What's in Jerusalem? A cross. And Jesus is determined to embrace that cross. Pick a word, whatever word you want, driven, constrained, pressed, compelled. Why? You know, an unbeliever looking at Jesus as he walks towards Jerusalem might think this guy has a death wish. This guy has suicidal ideation, which is a fancy psychological term, means that he is a person determined to die. Why? Why? Jesus must suffer and he must die. Jesus knows that in Jerusalem and on that Christ lies salvation for the world. But you need to make it even more personal than that. It's salvation for you. It's salvation for me. The cross is God's instrument in God's way to save the world. As a matter of fact, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24 will write, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed. Why a cross? Jesus knows that this is the way to please his Father. Later, Jesus will say in John chapter 24, 12, verse 27 and 28. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause, I came into this world. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then came a voice from heaven saying, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Jesus understands that the baby in the manger. Jesus understands that the perfect life that you could never live. Jesus understands all of the healing and all of the miracles and all of the proliferation of the stories are going to lead up to this sacrifice. Jesus will die for our sin. And the Bible uses several metaphors to explain the power and the consequences of sin. Sin captures us, it says in Proverbs 5.22 and Hebrews 12.1. It enslaves us according to Genesis chapter 4 verse 7. It is deadly, a sickness, an impurity that keeps us from God and separates us from God. And sin becomes like a drug or a habit. And habits require time and repetition. And it becomes an entrenched part of our thinking and our makeup. And Jesus knows knows that you're in trouble. And he knows that I'm in trouble. And he knows that the only satisfying solution to the trouble that you're in is going to be his sacrifice. And we're given a peek into the emotional state of Jesus. 
He is marching. He is focused. And what is he feeling? He's determined to do the will of God. He fully understands the cost and the consequence of obeying God. And sometimes we struggle with that cost and we struggle with the consequences. We we struggle with the idea of what we are going to do and what it means to be a current follower of Jesus. What does that mean and what kind of, of toll is it going to take on our life? And Jesus is leading the way. He is out front and the disciples are behind. Sometimes being first means being lonely. Spurgeon wrote, quote, no one knows but he who has endured it, the solitude of a soul that has outstripped its fellows in zeal for the Lord of hosts. It dare not reveal itself for a fire burns within its bones only before the Lord does it find its rest. And sometimes people will have to be the first to worship. And the first to speak and the first to go in the direction of confidence and obedience and submission to God. You might have been the first person in your family to have a right relationship with God in Christ. In history, Abraham was a pagan and he turned from his pagan roots and he embraced the true and the living God of the Bible. I grew up in a world where. People didn't honor God and they didn't honor the Lord. They, I grew up in a religious tradition, but it wasn't a religious tradition that lived its life as if the Bible were really true. And maybe that's you. Maybe you were the very first person to come into a right relationship and a saving knowledge of Jesus. You were the first. Jesus leads the way. He is out front. The disciples are behind. Experience has taught us that the sheep need a shepherd. And if there is danger, he guards. And if there's pasture, he guides. But he'll go first. He needs to go first. Because he knows the direction that he's going. Even though I grew up in Southern California, I hate the California freeways. I go to the pastor's conference and I'm leading and I go to a place where I normally don't go, which is San Diego. And so I'm, I'm taking a different exit this time as I'm trying to leave Southern California. And in my mind, I'm thinking San Diego is the last city. It's the bottom of the map before you get to the border. And so I'm getting the connecting freeway to the five freeway. I'm thinking I have to go south to San Diego, but San Diego is actually north from where the 15 and the five connect. So I go south south and I'm going through Chula Vista and I'm going to National City and there is the San Isidro exit and there is La Frontera. It's the border and I'm moments away from Tijuana. (laughs) I've gone the wrong way. It's at times like that you need somebody to follow. A good leader has several important characteristics. 
The leader has a clear sense of direction. And then the leader has to have the ability to persuade others to go in that direction. And so if you're a worship leader, or if you're a teacher, if you're a father, if you're a mother, if you're a Sunday school teacher, if you are placed in a position of responsibility, you have to have a clear sense of direction and you have to have the ability to persuade others to go in that direction. You saw as we came to the opening part of our message, you, you see the big C and the S and the D and underneath it are the words worship and even, or discipleship and evangelism. Many of you are familiar with <laughs> Colonel Sanders and Kentucky Fried Chicken, he, he gets on the news and the Kentucky Fried Chicken people say, he does chicken and he does chicken right. Now there's biscuits and there's taters and there's coleslaw. There's all kinds of other fixings that the colonel offers. I know. He goes, why do you talk about food this close to lunch? It's because I'm thinking about it. But he does chicken and he does chicken right and we do worship and we do discipleship and we do evangelism. There's a reason why worship needs to be an important part of our community and discipleship needs to be an important part of our community and evangelism needs to be an important part of our, our community because that's who we are and that's what we do. The cross was the instrument that would ensure the servant's joy. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Joy is that deep, settled sense of satisfaction. It's the kind of joy that knowing that you are right, Right in the middle of God's perfect, redemptive will of redeeming a bride to himself. And there's a big difference between happiness and joy. Jesus isn't going to the cross in order to be happy. Some of you think, oh, that's all I want. I just want to be happy. But happiness is dependent upon the circumstances. And if the circumstances are right, then you can't be happy. But joy isn't dependent upon the circumstances. Joy is dependent on the inward satisfaction and assurance that you're exactly where God wants you to be. And you're doing exactly what God wants you to do. My pastor Chuck Smith used to say, he used to use the illustration. He, he played football and he was a halfback and so was I. So I identified with it. The quarterback hands you the ball and you run for the goal line and you run there's a reason why they make you the halfback because you run faster than anyone and you really hate being hit so you'll do whatever it takes to avoid being hit and so you zig and you zag and you weave and you head for the goal line and you cross the goal line you spike the ball and you celebrate and then you hear the whistle blow and the flag is thrown for a brief moment you are happy and then you are sad because they just called the playback. And life consists of happy moments, but then sometimes they call the playback and you don't have a sense of joy. You don't have a settled assurance that you're exactly where you need to be. And sometimes that causes consternation. Because you wonder, am I going in the direction that I need to go? You are the bride. 
I want you to think for just a moment that you are on that road and there is Jesus and you catch a glimpse of his face. Do you see your face and your faith? Because Jesus is looking into the future and he sees you and he sees your life and he sees your circumstance and he sees your sin and he wants to forgive your sin and he wants to direct you in the direction that you need to go, which will ultimately mean heaven. Why is he so focused? Because he will do what is necessary to save you. And look at, at towards the end of verse 32, it says, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Look at the two reactions to the determination of Jesus. Look at the reactions. It is amazement and it is fear. Look again in his face, the author, the finisher of our faith. He, it brings new meaning to the words Fearless leader. They see the determination. And they understand where he is going. He's going to Jerusalem. And they understand that those people hate him. And they want to kill him. In Erdman's commentary were urged, quote, Let us pause and gaze on that face and form. The Son of God going with unfaltering step toward the cross. Does it not awaken in us a new heroism as we follow? Does it not awaken a new love as we see how voluntary was his death for us, yet we do not wonder at the meaning and the mystery of that death. Is that what it awakens in you? A sense of direction and heroism? We sing the song, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. I will follow you. Even though the road's marked with suffering and there's pain in the offering, Ask the text a question real quick. Look at the disciples just for a moment. Do you think some were more afraid than others? We've looked at Peter. We've looked at James. We've looked at John, Philip, Matthew, Bartholomew, Simon. There are all of these different people. We see Thomas. We can hear his voice whisper out in the distance. Let's go to Jerusalem. He's going to die. We might as well die with him. Really? The followers of Jesus know that the religious leaders are there. They know that they're committed to finding Jesus and executing Jesus. The disciples are truly perplexed. How about you? Are you fearful and afraid of the future? Are you fearful and afraid of the demands of discipleship? Are you fearful and afraid that if you follow Jesus in the direction that he's going, that you might experience some setbacks? You might experience some isolation, persecution, perhaps incarceration. Does it surprise you that rejection and sorrow and suffering 
and death are all of the things that will precede glory. And by the way, this becomes the very picture that Paul embraces and with all of his might when he says, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Paul, the apostle, he saw in the life of Jesus, life for himself. He saw in the miracles of Jesus, miracles for himself. He saw in the death of Jesus, the death of himself. He saw in Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, resurrection for himself. Think about the concern of Jesus. Think about the courage of Jesus and think about the confidence of Jesus because he knows, he knows, he knows what the end is going to be like. We live in a world where any number of people are willing to offer what seems to be convincing answers to the problems of life. Yet they point people away from Jesus. They point people away from the Bible. You don't really believe that nonsense. You don't really believe that Jesus is who he says he is. You don't really believe that a cross can cure anyone of anything. Do you really believe that? And why shouldn't you despise the shame? And why shouldn't you despise the suffering? Why shouldn't you want to be happy? But you understand something that the will of God and obedience to God is going to require that you go where Jesus goes and that you follow Jesus in the direction that Jesus is going. And look at the servant's sensitivity in verse 32. It says, then he took the twelve aside and he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. What's the source of his knowledge and understanding? Where does he get all of this information? Is the Father instructing him? Is the Holy Spirit leading him? How does he know the future in such shocking detail? I know what some of you are thinking. Well, Jesus knows everything. And you would be right. But you don't know everything. And neither do I. So it becomes a little bit more scary for me and for you, doesn't it? What do you know for certain? I think what we know for certain is that Jesus is going in a particular direction and he knows where he's going. Have you ever been lost and you didn't know which direction to go and how great it would be if there was someone who knew where they were going? Sounds like the desperate cry for leadership in our country, doesn't it? Does anybody know where we're going? Does anybody know what the future holds? After the resurrection of Jesus on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, in verses 25 and 27, you'll remember the Lord has risen from the dead. He begins that afternoon journey on Easter Sunday. The Lord told Cleopas and the other disciples, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things in order to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all of the prophets, he expounded unto them in all of the scriptures, all of the things concerning himself. 
There's a reason why we teach the Bible. There's a reason why we teach Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There's a reason why we open up the Bible and we begin to expound to you all that the Bible has to say about the prophecies, about the life, about the death, about the resurrection of Jesus, because God has had a plan all along. And when you open your eyes and you see the redemptive plan of God begin to unfold and you begin to understand that the plan includes you. Forgiveness for you. Grace for you. Life for you. Heaven for you. Jesus knew in chilling detail the events that were about to unfold. So much so that skeptical scholars will say... They inserted this in the text. I'm here to tell you they didn't insert it into the text. He knew in advance exactly what was going to happen. That he would suffer. Some might balk at his claim. Some might say other human beings suffered as much as Jesus. Torture, pain over months or years. But they can't explain that this perfect person, this holy person, this sinless person is going to suffer for the sum and the substances. Not just of my sin. And not just your sin. But the person sitting next to you. And behind you, in front of you, the person in every single generation, Jesus will face a severe test and a tremendous trial. And he will take the time to instruct his disciples. He cares for them and he wants to take the steps necessary to prevent overwhelming despair, overwhelming depression, overwhelming grief. And so he sets them aside in order to tell them what's going to happen. Have you ever wanted to know what was going on and then when you discovered what really was going on, you said, I don't, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. But love thinks of others. And love doesn't obligate people without including them in the plan. Love's obligation includes you in the process. And by the way, is Jesus rather blunt about what the future holds for him? Do you think he hides, ignores, or pretends like it's not going to happen? No. Jesus is the ideal servant. David Rockefeller used to say, a leader must see the vision and the mission and set the tone. And Jesus does all three. He sees the vision. He states the mission and he sets the tone. Walter McPeak gave this summary of a leader, quote, a leader is a person who's going somewhere, but not going alone. He takes others with him. His ability, ability in setting up situations in which others are willing to follow him and happy to work with him is a precious skill called leadership. This skill is made up of many qualities, 
thoughtfulness and consideration of others, enthusiasm, the ability to share responsibility with others and multitudes of other traits. But fundamentally, a a leader is one who leads, one who has a plan, one who keeps headed toward a goal and a purpose. He has the enthusiasm to keep moving forward in such a way that others will gladly follow him. Where is your leadership taking? Does it include worship? Does it include discipleship? Does it include evangelism? Because guess what? If it doesn't have anything to do with worship, and if it doesn't have anything to do with discipleship, and if it doesn't have anything to do with evangelism, I don't think I want to do it. I want to do those things that are going to result in forgiveness and life and light and redemption and healing and wholeness and wellness. But Jesus breaks the news. That suffering sometimes precedes glory. And he lays it out. Look at verse 33. The servants love and courage. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. Once again, Jesus says, we are going to Jerusalem. He understands the intense hatred that awaits him, but he's not going to turn back. He's going to stay the course. In Luke's gospel, chapter nine, verse 62, Jesus said, no one, no one, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is worthy or fit for the kingdom of God. And Jesus has placed his hand firmly on the plow and he's going in the direction of redemption and forgiveness and reconciliation. And he's not going to turn back. Because you know what's at stake? You. You're what's at stake. By the way, Does he practice what he preaches? What do you think the answer is? For the third time, Jesus predicts his passion. The prediction contains six details. Number one, betrayal. Number two, capital punishment. It's not just any kind of a punishment. It's a death sentence. Number three, the role of the Gentile government In his execution. Number four, he's mocked, he's spit on, he's flogged in verse 34. Number five, he's executed in verse 34. And number six, he is resurrected in verse 34. All of those things must happen. In verse 34, it gives us the servant's sacrifice and purpose. They will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. I need to ask you a question. Do you think his future is unpredictable and uncertain? He knows exactly what's going to happen. And he knows exactly what's going to happen to you. He knows exactly what's going to happen to me. He understands. 
I understand that while I was gone, there was a hailstorm. My poor wife said it ruined our crops. That there was a tornado warning and that sirens were, were blaring. In a book entitled 100 Meditations on Hope, Wayne Lamb writes, quote, In the midst of a storm, a little bird was clinging to the limb of a tree, seemingly calm and unafraid. And as the wind tore at the limbs of the tree, the, the bird continued to look the storm in the face as if to say, shake me off. I still have wings. I'll live anyway. In the midst of the storm that's about to blow Jesus understands that his father, his father is going to bring him back to life. And so no matter how painful, no matter how difficult, no matter how disastrous, no matter how intimidating the pain or the problems or the sorrow or the suffering that you're going through, Jesus understands and he's already given you wings Because the truth is that no matter how deep, no matter how dark, no matter how desperate your circumstances are, Jesus will be with you. He will go before you. He will bring you back to life. Your sins are forgiven and you will go to heaven. You know, and in Mark's gospel, after Jesus says these things, asks the text yet another question. How did the disciples respond? When they're given this news, how do they take it? Well, you know what? Mark's gospel doesn't tell us. But Luke's does. Do you have a Bible? Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, verse 34, I just want you to just glance down at a moment. Don't say anything just yet. But in Luke chapter 18, verse 34, with the biggest voice that you can muster. On the count of three, read it as loud as you can. One, two, three. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. And they did not know the things which were spoken. Clueless. They are clueless. Do you ever come to church and you hear me teach and you go, what's he saying? What is he saying? I don't understand what he's trying to say. When I read this text, I don't get as annoyed with you. (laughs) Could Jesus have made it any simpler? What part of betrayal don't you understand? What part of capital punishment don't you understand? What part of a Gentile government don't you understand? What part of mocked, spit on, and flogged don't you understand? What part of executed and resurrected don't you understand? In their world, dead people didn't come back to life. And in their world, 
it didn't make sense that betrayal and isolation and persecution and intimidation and execution would lead to anything other than a miserable life. And sometimes you feel exactly the same way, don't you? If God loves me so much, then why did my husband leave me? If, my, if God loves me so much, then why is my child sick? If, my hus- if, if God loves me so much, then how do you exp- explain losing my job? If, if God loves me so much, then how can you explain all of the rotten things that are happening? Because this isn't the end of your life and this isn't the end of the story. I heard of a little boy who found himself staring at a picture that was hanging in a store and it was the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. And there is Jesus hanging on the cross and there are the two thieves and there are the Roman soldiers and there is the crowd that gathers. And here's this little boy staring at the picture and and, and an older gentleman approached and stopped and looked. And the boy, seeing the man's interest, said, that's Jesus. And the man made no reply. And he said, them's Roman soldiers. And the man said, who taught you this? And the little boy said, I learned it in the mission Sunday school. And after a moment, the boy continued to look. And he said, they killed him. And the gentleman turned and he walked away. And as he walked away, the little boy ran after him and said, Mister, Mister, there's good news. He he came back to life. Sometimes we end the story a little bit prematurely. Suffering and pain precedes glory. H. Gordon Selfridge wrote, quote, the boss drives his men. The leader coaches him. The boss depends upon authority and the leader on goodwill. The boss inspires fear. The leader inspires enthusiasm. The boss says, I and the leader, we. The boss fixes the blame for the breakdown and the leader fixes the breakdown. The boss knows how it's done. And the leader shows how it's done. The boss says, go. And the leader says, let's go. You see, Jesus isn't just the boss. He's the leader. He'll go first. He'll inspire enthusiasm. He says, we, he will fix the problem. He will suffer. He will die. He will come back to life. And he doesn't die just simply as an example. 
He dies to experience forgiveness and salvation in heaven. And he will show the wealth of God's love and grace for sinners and grace for you. Grace for each day. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, wrote, Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. And above all, it is costly because it costs. God, the life of his son, the scriptures, you were bought with a price. And what has cost God so much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life. How dear are you? How precious and expensive? They have no idea. They have no understanding. They'll see Jesus' concern and they'll see Jesus' courage and they'll see Jesus' confidence. But they're looking towards Jerusalem. Do you know what you have the privilege of doing? Looking back at Jerusalem and the resurrection from the dead. There was a man who applied for a job as a prison warden. In the interview, the man said, do you think you can handle the job? These are a tough bunch of guys. And he says, well, if they misbehave, I'll let them go. No, that's not the right answer. Everybody who wants to be a leader shouldn't be. But Jesus has every right to be the to be the leader. Vance Packard said leadership appears to be the art of getting others to want to do something you are convinced should be done. And what does Jesus believe should be done? Salvation. Sanctification, glorification. Jesus wants us to know and follow him and love him. As a matter of fact, in John's gospel, chapter 20, verse 30, it says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and believing you might Have life in his name. It's the exact same repetition that Jesus said. Believe in me. Believe in me. Embrace me. Former President George Bush had this sign hanging in his office. Think big. Be frank. Fight hard for your position. Did anyone ever think bigger than Jesus? Did anyone's thoughts and ideas ever go further than the redemption 
and the reconciliation of every human being who would ever live? Did anyone ever express himself more clearly? And did anyone ever fight with more fiber than your Savior? Susanna Wesley, I think, had maybe 13 or 14 children. I don't remember, but she had two very famous children, Charles and John Wesley. And she used to tell her children, there are two things that you do with the gospel. Believe it and behave it. End of sermon. And only a way a mom can. Believe it and behave it. For the disciples, there's still a journey that's going to unfold in front of them. And for you, there's a journey that's unfolding right before your eyes. Can I encourage you? Keep your eyes on the leader, Jesus. He knows where he's going. He knows what to do once he gets there. And he knows where you belong forever. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. And thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. And Heavenly Father, we know that the journey that we're on and the road is clearly marked. For the disciple, it's marked suffering. It's marked persecution. But there's also another sign. Glory. It's just up ahead. Redemption. Resurrection. Heaven. In Jesus' name. Amen.